Well, this is something that I've said before in our church, so I don't think it's going to surprise many of you unless you're a new listener to this podcast. But one of the many things that's been disappointing for me about how the evangelical church has conducted itself over the past number of years, one of several pushes out the door for Meredith and I that made us say, yeah, I'm not sure we want to be here anymore, is the almost knee-jerk stance of defensiveness and hostility towards certain aspects of culture in the world. This expresses itself in a number of ways, but the one I'm most interested in today is this sense that there is a hostile culture out there that is some sort of existential threat to our beliefs and way of life. And so we need to defend our rights by whatever means necessary against that threat. We're under attack and therefore need to fight back and defend our position. This is an entirely understandable stance to take. It is natural in the literal sense. It's the stance that has been taken by every person and institution with power in the history of humanity. Actually, you could reach further back in the evolutionary chain pretty safely and say it's the stance taken by virtually every creature with power for many millions, if not billions, of years. If you've watched any nature documentary ever, you've seen animals with power defending that power violently at times against those trying to take it. It is natural. The problem for an institution like the church is that it isn't godly. It is, however, quite like Roman culture. To bring this back to the cultural setting of the New Testament, Rome was what is sometimes termed an honor-based culture. Your standing in society, your power, your opportunities and status, as well as those of your family as a whole, were dependent not on how much money you had, although that could help, but on how much honor you had. Honor was something like reputation mixed with social standing, mixed with wealth, mixed with your social network. And your main duty as a person in Roman society was to raise your own honor as much as possible, thereby raising the honor of your family as well, and to avoid bringing shame upon yourself, thereby lowering your honor and, again, that of your family. Honor was gained by acting correctly, treating those above and below you in the way that they ought to be treated. Note that this does not mean treating them kindly, necessarily, especially for those below you. Honor was gained when someone of obviously higher honor treated you with respect or lifted you up in some way. Honor was also gained by doing things to put other people in your debt. This could be doing favors for them, but often it was related to using your money and connections in one way or another. The more people in your debt, literally or metaphorically, the higher you and your family raised in the social hierarchy. And it was very much a hierarchy. Honor is not a rising tide lifts all boats sort of thing. Your raising honor lifts you and your family. It lifts those connected with you socially, but it lowers everyone else. It's a zero sum sort of game. And so that meant needing to defend your honor when it was threatened in some way. If someone else started acting as if they were above you, you either put them in their place by whatever means necessary, thus restoring or confirming your own status and honor, or you submitted to them thereby lowering yourself in the process. It was tantamount to admitting that they were, in fact, better than you. One of the interesting aspects of this for us today is that humility, being humble, was not a virtue in ancient Rome. It was not something to aspire to. It was a vice. Being humble meant being shamed, and being shamed had consequences not only for yourself, but for your family. Some scholars have argued that this is why it is the woman disciples who show up at Jesus's tomb on the first Easter Sunday to prepare him for burial, doing a job that should have been done by his immediate family, because, they say, his immediate family probably had disowned him, because that is the only way to put up a barrier between your family and your honor 
and the avalanche of shame coming your way because of association with the sort of criminal who would be executed on a cross. You have to cut ties completely. I never knew him. And we need that cultural background to feel the full punch of what Paul writes in Philippians 2. This is starting in verse 5. This is how you should think among yourselves, with the mind that you have because you belong to the Messiah Jesus, who, though in God's form, did not regard his equality with God as something he ought to exploit. Instead, he emptied himself and received the form of a slave being born in the likeness of humans. And then, having human appearance, he humbled himself and became obedient even to death, yes, even the death of the cross. And so God has greatly exalted him, and to him in his favor has given the name which is over all names, that now, at the name of Jesus, every knee under heaven shall bow, on earth, to and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus, Messiah, is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Paul is showing that Jesus does the unthinkable in Roman culture. He humbles himself. This was a new thing, a new idea, despite how obvious it seems to us, maybe, Jesus, who has equality with God, who is therefore the person of highest possible honor, becomes a slave, the person of lowest possible honor, and then is killed in the most shameful possible way, with your naked body exposed on a cross for all to see. The cross was designed not just to be painful, which is where so many contemporary depictions get stuck. The cross was designed to be maximally shameful. So that not only the individual, but their families as well, would feel the deterrent power of that fate and choose a different, usually a less revolutionary, path. And yet that's the path Jesus obediently walked. Jesus, who shows us most fully who our God is, willingly accepted shame instead of defending his honor or defending his rights, to use a more contemporary term. To make my point explicit, Jesus chose the exact opposite path to some of those in the evangelical church who claim so vociferously to be following him, which is hard for them to do when they could not possibly be walking more in the opposite direction. So we need to take another look at what Jesus has done here, according to Paul. Jesus sacrifices not only his life, but his honor, which in Roman culture is actually a bigger deal. That's why you hear some ancient stories about people committing suicide as the honorable way out. You see it today, actually, in cultures where families will kill their own family member to preserve the honor of the family. It sounds horrible to us because we live in a culture that values life above honor. But that has not always been the case. It actually is fairly atypical. It wasn't the case in the society that Jesus was crucified in. Jesus, Paul is saying, made the ultimate sacrifice. Not dying for us. That was a sacrifice too, but a secondary one. The ultimate sacrifice was willingly humbling himself from the place of maximum honor all the way down to the place of maximum shame for us. This is who our God is, the God we are supposed to reflect to the world around us in the way that we live. This is what our God is willing to do to bring life to the world. No sacrifice is too great. Sacrifice is one of our values as a church. It's the one we're focusing on this week in our remix slash refresh slash renew slash whatever reword we're using series, sacrifice. What I hope to highlight for us is that it's more than a nice sounding buzzword. You know, a, a good thing for a church to say. It's about reflecting our God's character or not. Are our lives and our collective life as a church characterized by the things that characterize our God? Are we willing to sacrifice for the life of the world? Now, before we tie a nice, neat bow on this here, there is an important tension 
that we want to acknowledge too. And Meredith is going to jump on here to complicate things for us. I joked with her this week that she was the Sarah Huckabee Sanders to my Joe Biden, but uh, for some reason she wasn't a fan of that comparison. So here's Meredith. This idea that sacrifice is a virtue and is Christ-like has been grossly and obscenely misused through the centuries by those with power to prey on those who are weaker. There are people today, mostly women, let's be honest, who sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice in ways that prevent them from having anything like a full and abundant life for themselves. And they do that because sometimes they feel like that's what they're supposed to do, that they have no choice. The line between sacrificing in the way God does for us and being abused in a way that is not at all what God would want for us, it's been made fuzzy on purpose. So we need to acknowledge that this idea is a lot more complicated than simply saying sacrifice more because God, as with so many things, we as followers of Jesus need to use our minds and our discernment to identify when God might be inviting us into more and a deeper sacrifice for the sake of the world and when the demands being put on us are not in the service of life for anyone. Rather, they're abusive, excessive simply not what God would want for us at all. When Curtis and I were first graduated from seminary, we got hired on uh, the youth ministry staff of a church on the other side of LA from where we live now. And we met that youth ministry team and they had a weekly prayer time for like our staff group. Well, one day, not too long in, one of our staff members shared that she was told about a trip that a group was going to take to Russia to do some service work. And as soon as she said the location, other members of the group audibly went, oh. And then she named some of the people that she knew would be part of that trip. And again, audible reactions. What we came to learn was a little bit more of our coworker's story. Her name is Allie. Allie's dad, Jax, met Jesus in Russia. He was a contractor, and he had been invited to go and be helpful on that trip at a time when he did not have any particular faith, but he did have a sense of altruism, and so he went, and Jesus met him there. Her whole family's life was turned upside down because of this. Jax died when Allie was 19 of mesothelioma, and it was highly disruptive, as it would be not only because of the incredible grief but even because of practical things, like not quite being able to finish undergrad the way she had hoped. And so this group who knew her father were going to Russia, but she wasn't really sure if she'd be able to go. She was just simply asking if we would pray with her about this. A couple days later on our commute, because see, Curtis and I were still commuting from Pasadena, another 45 minutes to this church. We hadn't moved yet. And so we're commuting together and One of us said to the other, I don't remember who went first, I think we should pay for Allie's trip. And the other of us said, yeah, I had the same feeling. Now, I don't tell you this because of anything heroic about Curtis or I at all. It was actually really important for us. It was fun. It was really fun to realize that God had led us into something together. It was really formational because we were new to having money. This was like our first job with salaries and benefits. And these were some of our first choices about how we would use those resources. And so it was kind of neat to see God helping us practice some generosity early on. 
And when I look at how we knew we wanted to say yes to sacrifice this bit of money, some of the things I notice are that others who knew Allie's story better affirmed why God might be leading her in this. She wasn't asking in a way that remotely felt uh, inappropriate or manipulative at all. We each had this nudge separately from one another as we were just praying for her. She had no power in the relationship over us. We were just equals. And all of those little details, I think those are the kinds of markers that we would be looking for when we consider whether a sacrifice is something God is asking us to do or something we feel pressured to do. Now, we aren't always going to get this tricky balance right. I think God has grace for that too. I think more than one thing can be true at the same time, that God would perhaps not have wanted somebody to sacrifice in a certain way, and yet God can use that sacrifice and honors it. I think that there are a lot of people that God has tender compassion for the things they've sacrificed, thinking it made God happy when God didn't want it at all. And so I think God meets them in the middle of even a mistaken sacrifice because of God's care and kindness and grace. One of the really interesting things about what Paul has to say in Philippians 2 is how Jesus' story goes full circle. After sacrificing to the fullest extent possible, Jesus doesn't stay at the bottom because God, the one with highest honor, raises Jesus up. Jesus' honor is resurrected with his body and he's placed above all creation again. The paradoxical message that Paul is proclaiming is that the way to true status The way to highest honor is not defending your interests and rights with everything you've got, trying desperately to hold on to it and not let it slip through your fingers. The way to highest honor, contrary to everything the world might tell us, is sacrifice. Being like Jesus, who is willing to sacrifice in order to bring life to the world. And that when we choose that path, when we follow Jesus in that way, we will become more like God reflecting that character to the world around us. And then we will be, Paul promises, raised up and seated next to Jesus, given the highest possible honor as one of God's children.